Good morning, Grace Toronto. Hello. Oh man, it's always a great way to start your sermon when uh, you're asking and saying hi to people, and the noise just gets louder. It's uh, it's always encouraging. <laughs> it's always always also encouraging just to be able to stand up here and to hear the chatter. I don't know if you can hear it when you're down there, but uh, there's a resonance and there's a beauty when you get to hear the voices conversing. And so I want to thank you all for coming today and uh, making my day just by letting me share in that moment. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kingsley. I'm one of the ministry directors here at this church. And uh, it's a joy to be able to bring you God's word today as we unpack the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you might be thinking, wait, didn't we finish 1 Corinthians 15 last week? Didn't we preach verse 58? What more can we do? Well, for those of you who are paying attention, uh, we actually skipped verses 50 to 57 last week uh, because I was supposed to be preaching last week, but I got the COVID, and so I was stuck at home and didn't think it was right for me to come in lest I infect everybody, so you're welcome. (laughs) I'm kidding. So as, as part of our process and our, our love for God's word, uh, we, we believe at this church that it's not good to just pick and choose passages here and there. If we're studying an entire chapter, we want to go through it and sift through it uh, word by word as best as we can. And so uh, in honor of that, we're going to go backwards and look at verses 50 to 57. Because 50 to 57 in verse Corinthians 15, believe it or not, is actually the climax of the passage. It's the high point of this entire book And so to skip it would be to skip something that God intends for us to find deep encouragement from. And so we're going to turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 57. To recap, in previous weeks, we learned that because Jesus lives, we have the assurance of faith and we also have a living hope. We also learned that our baptism has meaning and that our present suffering isn't futile. We learn that we will receive new bodies and that those bodies will be glorious beyond our imagination. Last week, we learned that because he lives, our lives and our work has meaning. Today, as we look at verse 50 to 57, we're going to learn that because he lives, we can be changed and we can sing. As we turn our attention to the reading of God's word, you're going to notice that only verses 50 to 57 are written there. But I've asked Anahid, who's our reader today, to read through the entire chapter for us. And the reason for that is because this entire chapter was meant to encourage the Christian. And since it's the last week for us today, if you've got nothing from all the previous sermons, at least let God's word encourage you. And so, without further ado, Anahid. Our reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted by accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts of Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, 
it has raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The, st the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we say thank you at the end of your reading, at this reading of your word, because we thank you for what you have done and the encouragement you've given us through your word in the past. And we thank you for what you will do as we consider other passages here that we have yet to consider. Would you encourage us? Lord, we thank you for what you will do. And we pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to perceive. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. Amen. In their most recent impact report, change.org, the world's largest tech platform for social change, declared that nearly every hour, every hour, one change.org petition achieves a victory. Boasting 450 million users over 196 countries, some of these change.org petitions that have successfully campaigned include getting the government to offer free menstrual products in schools, or getting the government to give open border access to life-saving cancer treatments during the border lockdown. The list is extensive, and areas of change are quite diverse. Nearly every hour, they said, one change.org petition achieves a victory. That's a lot of change. That's a lot of victory. And it begs the question, will all this change or bring us any closer to obtaining the perfect world we dream of? A world where injustices no longer exist. A world where division no longer exists. A world where suffering is done away with and where people can live in peace. What do you think is the answer to that question? Are we any closer? A research group, the Pew Research Center, took interest in this question 
And so they conducted multiple studies, and in their report, they came to a halting conclusion, declaring that large improvements will unlikely happen before 2035. The reason that we won't see any improvements, or all the improvements we hope for, is because humans will be humans. Think about that. Humans will be humans. What do they mean? In other words, though we're more connected than we've ever been in history, and though we have more power in each of our fingertips than our ancestors did, we will likely come no closer to obtaining the dream world that we have because humans, who are supposed to be part of the solution, are actually part of the problem. It's halting, and it's sobering. And if this is true, we are left to two responses, two natural responses. The first response is to despair. We tried our best, but our best wasn't good enough. So what's the point? Why bother anymore? That's one option. The second option, if we're left to our own devices, is to respond with desperation oscillating between cycles of determination, frustration, and disappointment. We can become desperate for change and burn ourselves out on the treadmill for change. As we burn ourselves in the pursuit of hopeless change. Left to ourselves, this is our two option. Both are inadequate though, don't you think? Both leave us at dead ends. So is there hope? The gospel says yes. In fact, the gospel gives us hope today because it offers us another way, a third way, if you will. It's a way that's not of this world, and it's a way that defies the categories of this world. It's a way that takes us out of despair and protects us from desperation. It's the way of the resurrection. Unveiling the mystery of change and the melody of change, Paul the Apostle will show us that true change is not found in us, but found in Christ. And turning us to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 57, we'll see that because Jesus lives, we will and can be changed. And because Jesus lives, we can sing. We have two points today. The first point is the mystery of change. The second is the melody of change. Let's look at the mystery of change. In writing to the Corinthian church, Paul has been talking for the last 50 verses about the way of the resurrection life and the assurance, comfort, and hope that it brings to believers who long for a world where God reigns and all is made well in the world. Some of these Christians have started waning in their faith. Some of them were wrestling with doubt. And no doubt, some were beginning to get desperate as they wrestled with frustrations and disappointment and despair as the restoration of the imperfect world they long for delayed day after day after day. Much like many of us, the Corinthians needed perspective, and so Paul's gonna give it to them. And he gives it to us here in verse 50 with a few prefatory remarks. Let's look at your bulletins to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
How will change happen? How will we obtain the perfect world that we dream of? Well, Paul tells us how it ultimately won't happen. It won't happen because of us. The phrase flesh and blood is a Greek expression to simply refer to our human bodies, our present human bodies as they are. The New Living Translation helpfully renders the phrase our physical bodies. Our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God here specifically refers to what theologians call the eschatological kingdom. This is a technical term that refers to the world that has been renewed by Christ, ruled by Christ, and at the end of the age when Christ comes back, it's a world where there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering, no more shame. Injustices no longer remain. And if you're a Christian today, this is the world we hope for. And if you're investigating a faith, I'm pretty sure this world, this world described here in the kingdom of God, is really the world you intrinsically long for. Think about it. Doesn't the description of the kingdom of God I said just sound so similar to what the world you're dreaming of? A world where injustices, sickness, suffering are eradicated. As we consider Paul's other words here, he says the meaning, uh, the, the, the perishable and the imperishable, uh, we, we, we have to ask, what does that mean? Uh, the meaning of perishable is debated. Some think Paul is poetically saying the same thing as he did in previous verses in a, in a, in a different way, while others think there might be a deeper nuance. Uh, Martin Luther, the great Christian reformer, thinks there's a deeper nuance, and I think he's right. We'll talk about this more later, but for him, he makes a strong case that perishable actually refers to the human body corrupted by sin. We'll get to that. Either way, though, if you don't even agree on what perishable means, it doesn't matter, because context makes it clear what Paul's main point is at this moment. Human ingenuity or human capacity cannot bring about the perfect kingdom of God. We can't. The Bible is saying a glorious and perfect world is coming. But we, as we are, can't grasp it. So then, how do we get it? How do we get there? Paul answers the question. Look with me at verse 51. This is the mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We will be changed. Did you notice Paul's phrasing there? We will be changed, he says. The dead will be raised. We will be changed making it very clear that the world we dream of and the change we dream of isn't a matter of human activity, but divine activity, Paul tells us that the way of the resurrection life isn't about us making the change, but us being changed. And this is mysterious, because this goes against the natural grain of everything we've been taught about change. No, like, consider, consider the mantra of our world. What does the world tell you about change? They say, you, you be the change. Not be changed. The gospel flips it upside down and says, if we are to live in a changed world, 
It's not that you change the world. It's that you need to be changed. Now, as we move to verse 52, we're told how this change and what this change will look like. It'll be glorious. Read with me verse 52. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. To help capture the wonder of this biblical truth and to illustrate the glory of it, uh, Disney is very helpful here. In fact, Disney's 2015 uh, remake of Cinderella is very helpful. Uh, Out of curiosity, how many of you have seen it? Anybody? A few of us. Okay. If you haven't seen that one, have you at least seen the 1950s original? Okay, I'm seeing nodding heads. So you'll see this. In one scene, Cinderella is standing before her fairy godmother, eager to go to the kingdom's grand ball. Her beautiful golden coach is ready. Her helpers await her. Yet she herself isn't ready to go. Dressed in a ragged, ripped, and handmade pink dress, Cinderella and her fairy godmother are faced with a problem. She can't enter the kingdom looking like that. What's the solution? Did Cinderella run up to her dark and dreary tower and try to patch up her dress? Does she toil and toil to change into a dress that would be fitting for the kingdom's great banquet? No. Looking at her fairy godmother, she asks a question. And it's a question that causes viewers' hearts to flutter. She says, can you do anything about my dress? And here's the beautiful thing. In a matter of seconds, with a wave of a wand, a twinkling of an eye and a literal orchestral soundtrack playing magnificently in the background, Cinderella is transformed in a big and beautiful, radiant and glorious new dress. She literally spins around as she's being transformed. The scene is enchanting. It's captivating. It's brilliant and wonderful. And it makes you wonder, why is that? Why are such scenes so dazzling to us? Why does it give us goosebumps? Why does it captivate us with wonder and awe? C.S. Lewis helps answer that question. He says, the value of myth is that it takes all the things you know and restores them with such rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. And what he's saying there is that these things resonate with us because deep down, they strike a chord with what we know to be inherently true of ourselves. Deep down, in the deepest parts of our souls, we know when we look at these scenes that that is something I was made for. That is something I believe should be my case. Deep down, we also know that in order to get there, we need help. The mystery of change is revealed by Paul, and it's very simple. The redeeming of the world and the changing of the world is not something we do, but something God gloriously does at the end of the age when Christ returns. And it's a present reality for you if you're in Christ. 
The question that we might be wrestling with at this point, though, is what's the relationship between work and change then? Like, if Paul's saying that the mystery is in us about us being, uh, being the change, but us being changed, you got to wonder, why seek to change the world at all then? Why bother? And I think that's a great question. And last week, Graham kind of addressed it when he talked about verse 58, and I think he did a pretty good job. But if you consider the Bible and what it, talks, what it has to say about our responsibility to the mission of the world, what you'll see is that the Bible never calls us to save the world. Rather, the Bible calls us to show the world the Savior and also what living in his kingdom might look like, what heaven on earth might look like. Let me say that again. The Bible never calls us to save the world, but rather show the world who the Savior is and what heaven on earth might look like. And this is why Graham can say with Paul what we read in verse 58, that we ought to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. The artist creates beautiful things to show the world a shadow of what beauty will look like in God's coming kingdom. The police officer upholds justice to show the world what justice will be like in God's perfect kingdom. And we can go on and on about our vocations and how they serve as show places for the coming glories of the kingdom. But if you want to work through that more, I encourage you to listen to Graham's sermon from last week because he does do a very good job unpacking that. And I don't want to be redundant. And so, another question you might wonder at this point is what was Paul's aim in writing all this to the Corinthians? What was his main point, if anything? What did he want the church to get out of this? I think the word mystery is helpful here as well. If we want to talk about implications for us, mysteries invite us to anticipate and marvel and wonder at that which has been revealed. A mystery puzzles us when we are still, uh, excuse me, a mystery puzzles us when they are still concealed and they lead us to eager anticipation of its final reveal. And a mystery stuns us and leaves us in wonder when they are finally revealed. And here in this passage, concealed, but now revealed, Paul shows us the mystery of the ages, how change will happen, how our change in Christ will happen. And so, Paul's inviting you today to anticipate and to marvel at God's coming way. Christians, I know for many of us, we don't think much on the resurrection. Most of modern day evangelical Christendom focuses a lot on the death of Christ. But here Paul wants to show us that the resurrection is the final point. The death of Christ is sure the climax, but there's more to come afterwards. And so Paul in revealing to us this here today says to you, anticipate marvel, look further. Another thing that the mystery invites us to do is it invites us to sing. And this is our second point, the melody of change. Reflecting on the glorious mystery of change, see Paul's response. Let's look at verse 54 in your bulletins. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it's written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul sings, rambunctiously rehearsing the rhythm of eternity's song. Paul sings. 
Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? When the Raptors won the NBA championships, we flooded the streets to celebrate. Remember those days? We were shouting, we were dancing, we were singing. We were singing our national anthem in the streets. We were singing, we are the champions in the street. We sang and we danced and we had the time of our lives. In fact, people who never sang before because they knew nothing about basketball also found themselves singing. They sang at the top of their lungs with folks dressed in red and black because they knew something good had happened. Victory was won. How do I know this to be true? Uh, Honest confession, I was one of those losers who didn't know anything about basketball and I didn't even know what was really happening until the final game. But I knew it was time to sing when they had won. And so there I was with my friends in red and black singing. Singing is natural when good things happen. And for Paul, this song is natural because something better than a basketball game had been won. Eternity had been won. Eternal freedom had been won. Freedom from what, you might ask? Freedom from that which doomed us to death and keeps us from ultimately changing. Freedom from sin. Remember how Martin Luther talked about perishable meaning the flesh that is corrupted by sin? He gets it from this part here in verse 56. In verse 56, Paul writes, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And using the image of a sting, Paul sees and helps us see that like the tip of a scorpion's tail or the fang of a venomous snake, Sin is the tooth or barb that ultimately makes humans human and what prevents us from changing the world and living in a changed world. It's what ultimately dooms us to death as we stand under the just punishment of God's law. And when we talk about God's law here, we need to know that Paul's talking about a very specific law here, a very specific instance here. He's referring to what Pastor Jeff talked about two weeks ago in his sermon where in Genesis 3, we read of Satan disguised as a snake, a slithering snake who comes and tricks Adam and Eve into breaking God's law. And what was the result of Adam's sin? Death. The power of sin is the law. And the result is death. Death for them and death for those who come after them as heirs for us. And here's the wonderful thing about the gospel. And here's why Paul can sing. God in his mercy doesn't leave us to die. Though Adam and Eve deserve to die and we along with them as heirs, God in his mercy doesn't leave us to die. If you read Genesis chapter 3 and you get to verse 15, what you'll see is God speaking to the serpent who poisoned humanity with sin. He says to him, enmity will be between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush her head and you will strike his heel. And centuries later, we see that actually happened when Christ fulfilled this word. Sending his son to die on the cross, hanging on a cross for our sins Satan struck the Savior's heel. Jesus died. I mean, he really died. 
but he didn't stay dead. Because after laying in a tomb for three whole days, Jesus came out of the grave, breaking the fang off the snake. In neutralizing its venom, Jesus rose from the dead and stripped death of its sting. So we can sing, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God, as verse 57 says, who gives me victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you read verses 51 to 53 in this text, we will see the bright side of the mystery of change. It's not until we get to the melody of change, verses 54 to 57, that we see what it costs. Our glorious change and our glorious resurrection is only possible because Jesus died and rose again. Putting his life as a deposit for our redemption, God guarantees that we will be fully restored in due time. Like an inheritance left in a trust fund, our resurrection in the kingdom of God will come. And this is why we can sing. And this is why Paul sings. If you're a Christian today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 invites you to find your voice and to join the universe in the rehearsal of our resurrection chorus. And I get it. Some of us are going to find it hard to do. I mean, look at the world. Look at where we're at. All the politics, the economy, the inequalities. It's going to be hard to sing. But Paul is challenging us and inviting us to not just look at our our immediate future, but look even further to our final future when Christ comes back. If you're struggling to sing as you look at this world and where it's going, look further. Look so far into the future until your foot starts to tap. Look so far into the future until your heart starts to hum. Look so far into the future until your soul begins to sing. Look so far into the future where Christ returns and the brokenness of this world is renewed, redeemed, and restored. Look further. Stefan was an old friend of mine And he was known in my church community as a man who made the resurrection the centerpiece of his life. And as we close, I'd like to share his story with you to encourage you to consider how we can sing in light of our present circumstances, but our future glory. Near the final years of his life, Stefan suffered three strokes over the course of three years. Strokes that robbed him of his ability to smile, swim, speak, and run. And on one particular day, Stefan got devastating news that the effects of his stroke will likely never change. We were with him. And as he received that news, do you know what his response was? He sang. He sang what we read here in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gave me victory in Christ Jesus my Lord. Having read 1 Corinthians 15 
and knowing his future hope, Stefan wasn't willing to be bound by the words of his doctors and his present, his present circumstances. No, looking further, Stefan could see a world where God would change him and God would change the world into a place where suffering, pain, and sin no longer remained. And so, my friend, with tears flowing down his eyes and semi-frozen lips, he sang, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives me victory in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Grace Toronto, if you were to look around, you're going to see most of us are pretty young. We're still in our 30s, maybe some 40s. There will come a time in your life when you'll be faced with some challenging circumstances. In those days, what will you look? Where will you look? Will you look at the present or will you look even further? The melody of change teaches us to look further. Because of the hope of the resurrection, the melody of change is ours to sing. We can sing in good times and bad times. We can sing in happy times and sad times. We just need to look far enough. And if you're investigating the faith, I want you to consider who in your life has ever faced death with such confidence and hope? And what in this world can offer you such a hope that you can sing? I contend with you, it's only the hope of the resurrection and those who have it that can sing. And so as we conclude, as we conclude today, we talked a lot about change. We explored the mystery of change and we learned about the melody of change. We learned that change, the change that our hearts long for is actually the change that comes in a resurrected world. And that the change we long for is a change we can sing about today. In other words, because he lives, we will and can be changed. And because he lives, we can sing. We can sing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. And I pray that it will serve us well as a church, not just today, but tomorrow. And the day after tomorrow. Help us to anticipate and marvel at the wondrous day to come when we will be changed in glory. Help us to marvel and anticipate the day, God, when you come back and restore all things. And as we wait for that day, Lord, help us to sing. Help us to sing as our souls rejoice at our promised destiny in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have a couple of minutes left. Excuse me. So we'll take a, a couple questions. Uh, we'll see how we go. Um, one of the things I'm told is that with COVID, you get a little bit of brain fog. So I feel like I'm a little bit handicapped right now. Uh, so we're going to do our best. And I, I appreciate you being gracious to me as we answer maybe two or three questions before we go. Absolutely, Kingsley. So I think uh, some of the questions that have come in this morning are more about application. Okay. Taking the passage, how do we tangibly apply it? Um, you've spoke about it in some of your end, but I uh, think they're looking to flush this out a little bit more. Sure. So one of the first questions is, how much of this change mentioned in the passage can we claim here and now? How can we help improve our present world, even if it's perishing? 
Sorry, repeat the last part again. How can we, what was the change? Yeah, how can we help improve our present world even if it's still perishing? Okay, and what was the first, the part before that? Sorry. Yeah, how much of the change mentioned in this passage mm -hmm. can we claim here and now? Okay, yeah. um, how much can we claim here and now? Well, I don't know, because you know, we'll see when God comes back. But uh, to Graham's point last week, okay, the work that we do here today it does carry into the future. We might not see the full benefits and we might not see the full glory of its impact until Christ comes back, but we can see it. And there is hope, it's not in vain. And so I would say, uh, how much is it? I don't know, but I have good hope based off of what we learned from last week that much of it will be bleeding in, much of it will bleed into the next world. In terms of the second part of the question, repeat that part for me again. Absolutely. Um, how much, or sorry, how can we help improve our present world even if it's perishing? Okay. So remember, uh, Pastor Jeff talked about the, the glory of our bodies, how it will be uh, similar, same, there will be continuity. Uh, the same will happen with our works, I believe. Uh, the, Graham talked about it again last week as well. The works that we do today will carry through in the future tomorrow. So, for example, uh, you know, the, the beautiful art that we see, all these things point us to the coming glory of Christ. And when Christ comes back, I do believe that that art will still exist. And that art will exist in beautiful glory, even more glory than what we created. The works that you do, if, uh, say, you're uh, an, an x-ray tech. I used to be an x-ray tech. And, and helping a person today, the imaging that we do, that encourages and helps the doctors to be able to figure out what's going on tomorrow so that the person might be able to, to live longer, perhaps even hear the gospel, so that they might be able to come into the kingdom of God later. I can't work through all the details of your vocations, but if you think hard enough and you, you, you really do meditate on it, I'm pretty sure God will give you eyes to see how your work leads to opportunities of glory in the coming kingdom. Maybe we have time for two more questions. Sure. I think this question is um, addressing something, an event that is happening uh, in a provincial election. Um, so this question is, what is the point of voting for any human authority um, when we know that the direction or the change uh, might, uh, sorry, let me just read the question. And I'm actually going to try to package two of them together because I think there's some, a, a good uh, they they kind of tie together. So what is the point of voting for any human authority uh, when we know that none of them can ever change the direction of where this world is heading? Uh, why vote? And the, the part B of that is, um, do Christians have a call uh, to advocate for social equality? This is a great question, and it makes me really excited because I get to use a word that I never thought I would get to use on the podium, and that is why should we not shirk our civic duty, is what you're asking. <laughs> you don't get to use the word shirk ever, and so why, do we, why should we not shirk our civic duty? I don't think it's necessarily related to our passage ex explicitly, but if I can pull from other passages, uh, Romans 13 talks about civil governments. First Peter also talks about governments in chapters 2, um, and we also see in Titus chapter 1 as well how we are to be subject to our authorities and how uh, the, the authorities exist as an agent of God's justice. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we don't always see that to be the case, but we have a sovereign God 
And God, if the Bible is any indication, is able to use even the most corrupt governments at times and work things out for good. Uh, we see this in Genesis chapter 50, right? God, what was meant for evil, God used it for good. And in terms of voting here, we have the privilege, we have the privilege to, to, to be responsible for who these people are that sits in government, who these people are that God will use in his sovereign hand of providence. And so for us who are able to vote, to not vote, well, we, we miss out on a gift and an opportunity that God gives us. I'm not saying you have to vote. I know that's a personal choice and that's yours to have and I'm not gonna judge you for that and I don't think anybody should judge you for that. But if there's any encouragement, God has given you an, a precious opportunity that not many people in our world have to vote, to have a hand in shaping our government and also how things run in our country and also an opportunity now to trust God, to work through these people to bring about the justice and the good that we long for in our society. And so 1 Timothy calls us to, to pray for our leaders. And so as you vote this, uh, I think it's June 3rd or 4th or 2nd, something like that. Uh, second, thank you for confirming that. Um, thank you, uh, it's brain fog. Uh, June 2nd, as you consider voting, pray, be prayerful as well, that God would bless the leaders that do end up in power and that they would be agents of good so that we would be able to get closer to that world of change. Uh, I took a little bit more time on that question, so we'll end there. If you have any more questions, please do feel free to email me at kingsley at gracetoronto.ca. It's one of my favorite things about preaching is the Q&A afterwards, so if you do have any questions, please do contact me. Okay.